0: Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat 154 for the 3rd of July, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin once again. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chester. So, uh, we've got a a reasonably full agenda this week. Uh, Fortunately, no big drama, but lots of interesting stories. There, There was a really great post on Naked Security by our colleague John Hawes about some recent uh, information released, I guess, by the payment card industry showing um, the rates of fraud by country and some of the bad practices consumers might be using with their payment card information. For example, maybe they wrote their pin down on a sticky note and stored it in their wallet with their debit card, or maybe they've uh, you know, left their smartphone unattended, unlocked, where it may have access to, say, financial services information or that kind of thing. And, you know, it was was quite a big disparity between countries, right? Uh, uh, Americans over a five-year period reported that about 41% of them had had some sort of credit or debit card fraud in in that five-year window, whereas in Sweden it was as low as 10%.
1: Yes, I guess I've got two comments to that. Uh, One is chip and pin, and the other is what a strange world we live in that we're going – Hey, in Sweden, only one in 10 people have been defrauded on their credit card, you know, as though that's some kind of amazing result, simply because it's so bad in the US.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it is a pretty sad state of affairs when one in 10 people is is, uh, experiencing some kind of fraud. And I see a lot of people kind of write that off and go, well, you know, The fraud is all absorbed by the banks and the merchants and all these other people. And, you know, those 10% or in the case of the United States, 41% of people, all they had to do was go to their bank and say, oh, that wasn't me. It's still draining our economy.
1: You know, you can go, oh, well, the merchant will have to pay. The merchant is still in their own right a consumer. They buy their product from the next guy and so on. So it's not as though
0: the fact that somebody's absorbing the cost means that it doesn't exist. Well, I guess, what what can we do about it? I mean, I I noticed the same trend as you when you referenced the chip cards, and I think we should be careful to differentiate between chip and pin and chip and signature. Some countries don't require a pin, but allow you to still sign even when using a chip card. But the highest ranked fraud countries, if you will, Mexico, the United States, etc., all are still using stripe-based cards, whereas a lot of the lowest Fraud rate countries, um, including you know most of uh, most European countries, were kind of in the lower middle. Uh, have adopted chip and pin as a standard, so clearly that can help. Is there anything consumers can do themselves to help lower these rates? Check those statements. A lot of people don't go
1: through them with the precision that they might. Uh, you know, if you are going to have fraud committed against you, the sooner you realise, the quicker you actually do
0: damage to the cyber crooks being able to use their ill-gotten credit card numbers. Yeah, and I guess the other thing we can take from this is some of those bad practices that were outlined, like how many people left their phone unlocked unattended, or wrote down PIN numbers, or these types of things. I mean, that's only making the problem easier for the crooks. Yes, let's be quite
1: clear. The primary difference between a chip-based card and a MagStripe-based card, from a consumer point of view, is the MagStripe is trivially easy to copy bite for bite exactly and the chip is not therefore in theory it's much harder to clone your card and just having a chip on your card doesn't magically protect you from all the other ways that crooks have at getting personally identifiable information out of you like phishing like insecure disposal of documents like telling other
0: people your pin all good points uh Another story was about some new Android malware, which unfortunately seems to be a recurring theme in the podcast. Uh, this malware, I guess, SMS's itself to people in the address book of its victims. Uh, are are Is this a high-risk thing? I mean, is this a, a, a panic worm? No, I don't think this is high-risk. I think it's interesting and important because... It
1: is not just malware. It's a virus. It's self-replicating. As you say, it generates these SMSs saying, check out this cool app. And, you know, it's come from your friend. So it's not just some random spam that you're used to deleting. You go and click on the link. It'll take you to an APK file. And if you're already the kind of person who lives outside Google's semi-walled garden, let's call it that, the Play Store, uh, and you're interested or used to downloading apps from other sources, then you might be tempted. As soon as you open the app, it immediately SMSes the next 20 people. And while it's about it, it actually foists an app, ironically, an app from a company called Mobo Genie that runs an alternative APK market. And you can imagine this is somebody who's on a pay to install deal, some kind of partner who's gone, hey, uh we're not making any money through fair means let's try foul
0: yeah and can be challenging for people especially technical people who like to mess with their stuff i mean you know my work device is not rooted but uh, a lot of my uh, old devices and play devices that are personal are and um you know i've got a lot of friends in the open source community a lot of folks on their androids they like to get apps from say f-droid which is a you know another alternative market that's focused on 100% free open source software and while nothing malicious has ever popped up on f to my knowledge, in order to access F-Droid, you have to disable some of those security precautions that are built into the operating system, which does put you at higher risk from other things. The good news, of course, in malware, viruses, worms that try and spread in this way,
1: where they have to send you some kind of message, a call to action, then get you to do the action, then download and install software, is that in terms of blocking it, you do get three bites at the cherry. And I'm happy to report that Sophos Antivirus for Android uh, did what I believe is called a triple play on this one. Uh, it got all three stages, which I guess is a
0: long way of saying defense in depth really works. And, of course, keeping things up to date is an important part of that. And in this week, Apple shipped some pretty big updates. We got OS 10. 10.9.4, uh, we also got some updates for Lion and Mountain Lion, we saw iOS 7.1.2, Safari 7.0.5, uh, basically all Apple platforms got uh, a patch bump, um, although it was quite a disparity that is concerning to me that Apple may not be taking mobile security as seriously as they should. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, between iOS and, and Safari, right? Yes.
1: Safari 705 for OS X had about 10 remote code execution problems fixed, but somehow the Safari that goes with iOS had more like 30, including two vulnerabilities with CVEs that date back to last year, 2013.
0: Yeah, and I I, I mean, I don't like to count vulns all the time as, you know, a a measuring stick per se, because you could argue that more vulns being fixed makes it more secure. Sure, but it's the disparity, isn't it? The same code
1: base had many more fixes for iOS. The absolute number is kind of irrelevant. It's the fact that there was 10 in one, but 30 in the other. And as you say,
0: it does raise the question, where is mobile security in all of this? Yeah, well, maybe this was a catch-up. Maybe this is where they start treating mobile security uh, on an equal footing with OS X moving forward. We'll, We'll certainly keep an eye on it. Uh, You you pointed out in the story on Naked Security that Apple's giving at least the appearance of consistent releases now, even though, again, we've got no actual statements from them about what their intentions are in any front.
1: Yes, one a month for the last three months. I'm just going by the safaris. There was four months where there was one every two months. And then the last three updates, it's been uh, April, May, June, although the June one just got in by the skin of its teeth on the 30th. So who knows? Maybe they are going
0: to be regular and frequent. I'll, I'll, I'm going to be about a month from now when we might expect another update. Let's say if they kept on this monthly cycle, I'll be at uh, Black Hat and DEF CON in Las Vegas, and we'll see if, if Apple actually has any sort of a public presence. Uh, they, they're they always there lurking. Their security engineers are just as good of nerds as everyone else out there, but they're they're usually a bit incognito.
1: Yes, if they came out of the woodwork, it would be so good for everybody, for Apple, for their users, and for everybody else.
0: Well, switching gears to Apple's arch nemesis, Google, uh, I wrote a post this week on their end-to-end beta alpha pre-early test extension for the Chrome and Chromium web browsers, and it was kind of interesting, right? I, I Did took... you
1: see that piece on, I think it was some kind of, Google, how Google is Chromebook thing in France, and the guy doing the presentation had a Mac, did you see that? Oh dear <laughs> I bet he doesn't have a Mac anymore
0: yeah i I well, you know Google of course uh, expunged windows from their environment after uh apparently China got all up in their business a couple of years back, so it's it's Mac or Chromebook or Linux uh, uh if you're a Google employee from my understanding
1: that's a cool word, Chester expunged. <laughs> to expunge Windows. It sounds pretty dramatic. And I guess it was probably quite a big deal to
0: do it, right? Google Google had a bit of a defenestration, you could say. Um, but this end-to-end plugin, you know, I had to compile it myself and, you know, it's not ready for prime time by any means.
1: This is the open PGP thing, right?
0: Yes. Where you put
1: public key crypto into the browser, you do, I do, and then when we exchange emails, they're encrypted sort of as they leave memory in my computer, it's only ever decrypted when it's going to be shown on your computer. So it doesn't matter whether Google have TLS in the middle or whether they decrypt it in when they're moving it around inside their network. Nobody
0: can smell anything except you and me if we do it right. Have I summarized it correctly? Yeah, in essence it's a you know, an implementation of uh, OpenPGP, which um you know is one of the only ways to uh, reliably transmit messages properly uh, if you want them secured from your service provider or network provider, etc., so that nobody ever has an opportunity to to leak the content. Although it is worth pointing out to people that the from and to and subject, the the frequently referred to metadata, is still unencrypted in a PGP-protected uh, message. So uh, from an NSA metadata collection standpoint, you're not really doing anything, but the actual content of the message itself is protected. You know, PGP's never been easy to use, which is why it's not widely adopted and why not, you know, I can't securely email my mother. The only people I know that that use OpenPGP or GPG or any of the compatible alternatives are malware researchers who use it to safely send malware to one another, knowing that the files can't be accidentally clicked and opened and, and accidentally unleash a worm.
1: Yes, and also so that you can say, well I didn't give this to the whole world. I only made it available to people whom I know and trust. So it's a way of sort of putting a hand on your heart and saying, oh, well, I didn't just bung this thing on a website and uh, hope that the link wouldn't leak out to the wider world. So I guess from a publicity point of view, it's quite good for Google that, you know, there was all this, the research they had about how many servers weren't requiring TLS connections and how many people would send Google Mail that didn't bother to use TLS. So I guess what they're saying, it's not only down to us. Our servers do support encryption and would prefer it if you are willing, but here's a way that you can actually, if you like, take the crypto into your own hands, which is always
0: good whether or not the underlying email
1: transport is encrypted
0: as well. Yeah, and their public pressure seems to be having a little bit of impact. I actually looked at the numbers when I uh, uh, was writing the story, and because Google keeps the numbers up to date on the incoming and outgoing percentages of the TLS encryption. And it's bumped up a couple points in both directions. I think they're currently receiving about 54% of mail over TLS and sending 72% of mail over TLS, which both those numbers are two to four percentage points higher than they were when they originally uh, publicized this plugin and the numbers back in early June.
1: I guess in a way, Chester, it's the other side of the encrypt your stuff before you upload it to the cloud story, isn't it? You would expect, for example, that your web interactions with a cloud service where you're uploading a file will be encrypted so that whatever you choose to upload can't be sniffed in transit. But if you don't want it seen at the other end, then you've got to encrypt it first. And we've been recommending that for ages. And this is exactly the same thing. If you genuinely want to make sure that your email is secure end to end, it's no good encrypting it for most of its journey like a a TLS-based SMTP connection would do, you have to encrypt it for its entire journey from person to person.
0: Absolutely correct. And that does conclude Sophos Security Chat Chat 154. For all the latest security news, including these stories and more, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. These podcasts are available on iTunes via RSS over at soundcloud.com slash sophossecurity. And now on tune in as well. And until next time, stay secure.